But let me invite you to remain standing in the hope of hearing from God through His Word and grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. Our series of expositions through Luke's Gospel uh, marches on this morning as we want to look at verses 57 through 80 together. And as it is quite a sizable length, let me go ahead and read it for us and then pray briefly that God would bless our study of His Word together and then we will begin to hear from Him. But even now let us hear because He is speaking to us through His Word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy that is promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we come unto you, eager for you to speak unto us through your word. We thank you that your word is life. And we pray that you would give us life through it, that you would comfort us, that you would convict us, and that you would build us up in Christ. So give us eagerness to hear from your word. May your spirit illumine its truth unto our minds and hearts. Help me to preach as I ought, boldly and clearly, as a dying man unto dying people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. I have been, and many of you might resonate with this, a lifelong 
fan of the Lord of the Rings. I've read the books many times. I've seen the movies many times. And many more times I've listened to the movie soundtracks. I've, I've enjoyed the emotion that seems to come through the story as it's carried along by the wings of, of an orchestra. And the composer of these soundtracks employs in them an operatic technique that is known as the leitmotif, which is essentially the combin or combining of a musical theme to a specific person, a specific place, or event. And so when those people, events, or things show up in the story, there is this musical underpinning to the narrative. And one of my favorite ones in The Lord of the Rings is the fellowship theme. It shows up the first time that Sam and Frodo begin to make their way towards Rivendell. And in the rest of the movies, it shows up all over the place, sometime in moments of triumph, sometimes in moments of, of seeming tragedy, uniting the story together. And I tell you that because we come in Luke's Gospel as the chapter ends, chapter 1, to another song about the Savior who is about to be born. And what we see in this song is a theme running through it that we've actually seen in studies prior. Because if you were with us last week, Pastor Belanger walked through Mary's Magnificat, particularly her song in verses 46 through 55. And if you were with us, I wondered if you noticed one of the themes that was running through this young teenage girl's song that magnified God. If you happen to have forgotten it or you weren't with us, let's see if we can notice it again. Look at verse 50 of chapter 1. Mary says, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We'll skip down to verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So there was a theme running through Mary's Magnificat of God's covenant mercy. And what we're going to see in our text this morning, Zechariah's Benedictus, is that same theme running through his song. And so the simple theme that we want to highlight together, and hopefully notice with fresh eyes of faith, is the call to praise God for his covenant mercy in Jesus Christ. So kids, what you might want to pay attention to, I encourage you to pay attention to is what this passage says about God's mercy. Maybe you can write it down, talk about it with your parents on the way home, maybe over lunch today. What does it mean that God is merciful? Or even if you're a Christian and someone comes up to you this week and says, hey, I, I am hearing in this Christmas season this good news of Jesus Christ who is the merciful Savior for sinners. How might you describe God's mercy? How might you define God's mercy. Because isn't it true that it is one of those words we do find richly woven into all of Scripture? But how would we speak about it specifically when asked to do so? So what we have in our text, 57 through 80, is essentially a scene of a baby's birth and a song about the baby's birth. So there are two specific sections, and even the song itself has two stanzas, a stanza of praise and a stanza of prophecy. So what I want to do to help guide us along the way is just walk through these verses with three simple headings. First, in verse 57 through 66, we want to see God's abundant mercy. Then, 67 through 75, God's promised mercy. And then 76 to the end, God's saving mercy. And if you're in here this morning and have yet to know 
how merciful our God is. I pray and let us even pray as we study that you might leave this morning for the first time clinging to God's covenant mercy in Jesus Christ. So first, abundant mercy. You notice in verse 57 that finally, nine months after we met her, Elizabeth has finally given birth to her son. And the neighbors are quite excited about it. You'll notice verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. You know, I wonder when the last time was that you rejoiced with a brother or sister in Christ over God's great mercy in their life. Remember the command of the New Testament, rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Have you considered before that one of Satan's great temptations and schemes is in the midst of your suffering and hardship to make it to where you don't want to rejoice with others? I wonder if you can rejoice with others whom God is blessing in the midst of your season of suffering, hardship, trial, or affliction, in a season where it seems that God is in no way blessing you. Well, the neighbors recognize that this child born is God's great mercy towards Elizabeth and Zechariah. And they're so excited, in fact, that we find out in the text, eight days later, according to Jewish custom, this baby was taken to be circumcised, and they are eager to name him Zechariah after his father. But surprisingly to the crowd, Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. John, which means God is merciful, or God is gracious. Well, they know this can't be exactly what should happen to this family, so they turn to Zechariah and say, Zechariah, what should the child be named? And if you haven't been with us in our studies of Luke, we need to know something about Zechariah's previous nine months of life to know why what is getting ready to happen is quite amazing. Uh, You may recall at the beginning of chapter 1, Zechariah, this priest who is advanced in age, was ministering before the Lord in the temple when the angel Gabriel shows up. He says, Zechariah, you are going to have a child. Not just will you have a child who's an ordinary baby, you're going to have a child that is the long-prophesied Elijah who would prepare the way for God's Messiah. Zechariah seems to look at himself, his age, his wife, and her age, and he says, this is not possible. So he says, Gabriel, uh, give me a sign. Uh, What sign can you give me that I might believe God's word? Well, Gabriel says, you'll get a sign, but it's a sign of discipline. What was the sign? You don't get to speak for nine months. That will be your sign that God is going to give his mercy to you. And in fact, based on the text, you'll notice in verse 62, they make signs to Zechariah inquiring what he wanted to name the child. It seems as though he wasn't just dumb, he couldn't speak, he was also deaf, he couldn't hear. And so eventually they get his attention, Zechariah asks for a writing tablet, which would have been a piece of wood that had a film of wax laid on top of it. And notice what he sketches into that film of wax in verse 63, his name is John. And I want you to see that this is not just a simple example of Zechariah's household leadership. This is actually Zechariah's obedience to God. You might remember all the way back in verse 13 of chapter 1, Gabriel says, God through Gabriel says, you will name your son John. So 
Zechariah seems to have learned the lesson. He's following God now in faith and obedience, and not insignificantly. Notice what happens as a result in verse 64. And immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors. If you've studied scripture, have you noticed before when God's abundant mercy falls upon a people, awe tends to follow it? Fear at God's character and his kindness towards his people seems to flow in the train of his abundant mercy being given to them. Because God, in this moment, in Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives, had broken their season of prolonged barrenness. They had even broken with common tradition, naming him John. That's what God had said. And then now, even Zechariah, his silence is broken as he obeys God and names his child John. And so the neighbors all break out with the question, notice verse 66, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was on him. And even that language, hand of the Lord, is language that is all throughout the Old Testament, it often accompanies an individual when God is getting ready to use that individual to bring about a mighty act of deliverance on behalf of his people. And it's deliverance of which Zechariah is now going to sing about as he begins to praise God for his promised mercy. For notice verse 67 and 68. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So what is Zechariah in this first stanza of his song actually going to bless God for? I think we can kind of summarize it by four simple words. And maybe you can write this down as it helps you understand what he is doing in our passage. First, he's going to praise God. He's going to bless God for his visitation. You notice as verse 68 continues, he has visited his people. And there seems to be something linked right to his visitation, which is the second word, is he blesses God for his redemption. That God has come once again to his covenant people and has redeemed them. So certain is the redemption that's about to come in Jesus Christ that Zechariah can even speak of it as though it has already happened. And one thing you might do later on this week if you have time, you might take Zechariah's song, maybe with the help of a friend, or a commentary, see all of these Old Testament quotes or themes that are woven into the song. And one of them is this theme of God visiting his people with redemption. Consider the book of Genesis and what God did with Abraham and Isaac. Another old couple that was barren, that God had made a promise to that a child would come, And Isaac, of course, is eventually born. He grows up, and then what happens? God says, Abraham, sacrifice your son. So Abraham goes up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. He lifts up the knife. Can you imagine this as a father? Getting ready to plunge it into the heart of his son when what happens? God visits him. And what does he provide? A ram. He provides redemption. For Isaac, which is, of course, foreshadowing the Son of God that would die on the cross of Calvary, blood that would be spilled in the place on our behalf. 
reason we have to praise God for his visitation and redemption towards us in Christ. But even thirdly, I want you to see he blesses God for his salvation. Look at verse 69 through 71. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, kids, think about that language. What does it mean that Jesus is like a horn of salvation? Well, it could be just simply a quote from Psalm 18, verse 2, but more likely, it's something that was true within the ancient Jewish culture as they thought about symbols in creation for spiritual realities because the horn was a sign of an animal's strength, particularly in Jewish culture, the strength of an ox. We even have a saying, don't we, in our day today? Someone is said to be as strong as, a, as an ox. And so what he's praising God for in this moment is not just salvation, but salvation that's going to come through a redeemer who is strong enough, again, notice verse 71, to save God's people from their enemies. And you might want to just keep that in the back of your head because in just a moment, Zechariah is going to show us who is, what is, the greatest enemy that we face. So he's blessing God for visitation, his redemption, his salvation. Fourthly, his realization And the reason I use that language, notice verse 72 and 73. He's raised up this horn of salvation, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Have you noticed in the Bible, from Genesis all the way deep into the New Testament, how much the Abrahamic covenant shows up and how important it is for our life in Christ. Maybe you haven't thought about it this way before, but it seems as though for the biblical authors, spirit-inspired individuals, that the Abrahamic covenant is almost like this key, this spiritual key that unlocks the door onto these treasure trove of promises that are ultimately realized in Jesus Christ. Because last week, Mary, another theme running through her song was the covenant with Abraham. Look back to what Mary's saying in verse 55. God has remembered his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. So students, as you hopefully continue to be hungry to know God's word and grow in the truth of what God has spoken to us in his Bible, I hope you'll begin to notice how rich is the theme of the Abrahamic covenant that's woven throughout the Holy Scriptures. You know, parents, if you have children, especially if you're members here at Redeemer, we believe your children are covenant children. Are you teaching them faithfully the promises of God that he has made in his covenant? Are you living by these covenant promises in order to see them grow in faith? We even in our Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, don't we highly value covenant theology? We place an accent on covenant theology. And might you even be encouraged this morning that it's just a biblical accent. Filled with the Spirit, Mary and Zechariah. Praise God for his mercy. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his faithfulness to the covenant he made generations ago 
to Abraham, all the way back in the book of Genesis. The birth of John is God's abundant mercy. And so Zechariah sings a song of God faithfully bringing about his promised mercy. And what I want you to see thirdly in our text is the truth of God's saving mercy. Some of you know that my wife is pregnant with our sixth. Two weeks from today, our fifth son is due. So Lord willing, around two weeks from today, I will greet our son, Boston Charles Stone, which many have asked uh, where the name came from. Scottish theologian in the early 18th century named Thomas Boston. I felt he needed a 21st century namesake. But when Boston comes out, maybe you remember this as a father, or grandfather, aunt or uncle, or mother or grandmother. You, you hold the child, don't you? And you look at it for the first time. And once you get over the emotions and the surreal reality of God's kindness in providing yet another child, at least I tend to then pray for the child and then think, what will God do with you? Can you imagine what it must have been for Zechariah to hold John and to know what God was going to do with this baby? For notice what he prophesies now in verse 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people. That's what John was going to do. He was going to minister in such a way to prepare the way for the Messiah to come by preaching, by ministering the knowledge of the salvation that God is bringing to his people. And what I want you to notice is what he doesn't say. What Zechariah doesn't say about salvation that John's going to preach. Because even in this moment in the first century Jewish culture, it may have been expected that John was going to come and Zechariah could have said, you will give knowledge of salvation to God's people in the overthrow of their political enemies. But he doesn't say that. Nor does he say, you'll give knowledge of salvation to God's people in the promise of material blessing and prosperity. Nor does he say, you'll give knowledge of salvation to God's people in the assurance of a comfortable life. What does he say? You will give knowledge of salvation to his people, look at the end of verse 77, in the forgiveness of their sins. This, dear friends, is the greatest enemy we face. Sin that resides within us. Sin that we are born into. Sin that we must be forgiven of if we are ever to be with God. I tend to think that most of us have a hard time grasping the fullness of God's forgiveness. Maybe I'm just universalizing my own experience, but if we think that God's forgiveness really isn't that big of a deal, how true it is that we don't realize how big of a deal sin actually is. Or if we think as Satan might tempt us the other way, that we are so wretched and terrible and horrible sinners that God would never want us in our family, so he would never forgive us of our sins. Oh, you don't know how big of a deal God's mercy actually is. And this is the knowledge of salvation that John is going to preach. This is the knowledge of salvation that all of us need. And as you even examine your own ordinary day, 
your own ordinary week. Maybe the, like me, you're convicted how little time is spent seeking growth in this knowledge. That we are active in knowing things that in and of themselves are not wrong. Knowledge of sports, knowledge of politics, knowledge of pop culture, knowledge of what our friends are doing via social media, and we have little time for the knowledge of salvation that is real, revealed to us in God's word. What a mercy it is of God, isn't it, that he calls us to gathered worship service to hear of his mercy, to hear of his forgiveness of sins. About a week and a half ago, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and I had before dinner met with my doctoral supervisor to go through two chapters of my dissertation. And I remember one point, we were walking through chapter six, and he just kind of paused in our evaluation of the argument and said, Jordan, you know, just watch your adjectives. And uh, if you know writing well, the best writing coaches and teachers will say, don't use too many adjectives. Now you often find that they are unnecessary and clutter your argument. But when we see an adjective in the Bible, we know it's inspired. And thus we know it's necessary. Because what kind of mercy does Zechariah say God has in the offer of forgiveness of sins? Look at verse 78. Because of the tender, the tender mercy of God. I find that amazing. He could have used other adjectives that would be true to define, to modify God's mercy. Strong mercy. Everlasting mercy. But what does he use? Tender mercy. Do you know the tenderness of God towards you? Even the word here in the Greek is more literally bowels. It was an ancient way of speaking about the gut, which was understood to be the, the deepest seat of affection. It's Zechariah's way of saying that God's mercy towards his people is not out of simple obligation, but it's out of deepest affection. So maybe you're in here this morning and you haven't come to know this mercy of God. Maybe you even sit here this morning and believe that God is just some judgmental, harsh, punishing, divine being. What I want you to see is the tenderness of God that we who have broken his law, that we who have sinned and deserved his eternal punishment, he has shown us his tender mercy in sending his son, Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That if you would see Christ crushed on the cross of Calvary, what you see there is not just God's judgment upon our sin, which we do see. What do we also see? His tender mercy. The Savior's tender mercy that led him to spill his blood, that he might cover us in our sin and cleanse our consciences. It is eternal life, it is forgiveness of sin that is offered to you if you would but turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. It is saving mercy. But Zechariah's prophetic song is not done. He's, he's wanting to also sing of God's illumination. Look at verse 78 through 79. Because of the tender mercy of God, our sins will be forgiven, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. You know, kids, I wonder if you are like my children and are, are scared by the dark, especially one of our younger uh, kids, Knox, turns three next month. He never likes to go into a room when the lights are turned off 
if we tell him, go into your room or go to the bathroom, whatever it is, he'll go in and hightail it right back to us and complain that it's dark in there, Daddy. A light needs to come on. And isn't it true that in our sin, what are we captive to? Darkness. The terror of our iniquity. But like the sun shining over the morning horizon, so comes Jesus Christ in his saving mercy. As the old translations would say, the day spring from on high has appeared. God is full of mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. Abundant mercy, promised mercy, and saving mercy. I'm sure many of you know that uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul who I would consider the greatest popular theologian of the last century, died on Thursday of this week. And it was an affecting thing for me because he had such an influence on my life in all kinds of ways. So I've read with eagerness every tribute that has been written about him from beloved students and peers. I've even gone back and thought of the various ways that he has influenced my life. And in thinking about that, I, I recall the time where I heard him lecture. And isn't this how it often even happens in sermons and messages? I have no idea what he was lecturing about. But I remember an illustration that he had in, in the lecture. And it was this story of Ligonier, his ministry, commissioning a consulting firm to survey women about what characteristics they desired most in their husband. Again, I have no idea why they did this, but I remember what the results were. And after all the results came in, R.C. said that two characteristics dominated all of the others of what ordinary wives were looking for in their ordinary husbands. And it was that they would be men of strength and tenderness. And I've often reflected on that because I do think that there is something even within our hearts as image bearers of God, that we long for a leader full of mercy and a leader who is mighty. And do you see how Zechariah's song says, the Savior full of might and full of mercy has come. He is the strong horn of salvation raised up to save God's people. He is God's tender mercy enfleshed before the world, Jesus Christ. So the question that I want to leave us with considering this morning is what ought to happen when God's people know his mercy in Christ? What exactly might it look like, what exactly does our text say it should look like when God's people know his mercy, his covenant mercy? Let us notice a couple things and then we will be done. First of all, God's mercy compels service. Skip back up to verse 74. He's raised up a horn of salvation. Notice the purpose, according to verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might what? Serve him without fear. The Christian life is to be one of, of service, of sacrificing our time, talents, and desires in order to serve Christ. But notice here, because in the rabbinic tradition of the day, you were going to serve God either out of fear or serve God out of love. And Zechariah says that we might serve him without fear. Loving service of God is one of the purposes that he has shown his mercy unto us. But notice how it continues and gives us more truth about what should be true about us. That we might serve him, verse 75, 
in holiness and righteousness. So mercy compels service. Mercy grows righteousness and holiness. And students, notice particularly the end of verse 75. That we might serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So parents and grandparents, leaders in this church, Sunday school teachers, deacons, elders, let's write this upon our minds. Let's communicate this to our children, to our grandchildren, to the covenant ones in our midst, that the greatest purpose for which they can live is what? To serve God in holiness, a purity of heart. To serve God in righteousness, purity in actions, all the days of their life. And encourage them that they can do that in all kinds of ways. But that is the highest calling. That is what it looks like to know, to truly know God's mercy. So service, holiness, righteousness. Fourthly, peace. Look at the very end of verse 79. The day spring on high shall appear to guide our feet into the way of peace. Might be a wonderful exercise for you this week to examine these things in your own life with the spirit-inspired help of a spouse or another loved one or friend. Am I growing in understanding God's mercy? And is that showing itself up in service, righteousness, holiness, and peace? And I want you to see how all of these four things even come together in Jesus Christ, our tender, merciful Savior. For we know that he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, that he is the Holy One of Israel, that he is the long-prophesied Son of Righteousness. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, he himself is our peace. What does it mean to know God's mercy? It means little more than to abide in Jesus Christ our covenant king. What reasons we have today, don't we? To praise God for his covenant mercy in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to grow in our praise of you. Help us through the power of your spirit to be more hungry to know your mercy to bless you as Zechariah blessed you. Give us a measure of the fullness of Christ as we want to serve you this week that we might indeed grow in holiness, righteousness, and peace. Let this be a church body that delights to praise you each and every day. Throughout all generations, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.